Well, it's Saturday, and as they say on Saturday morning's fair, a balladeer from the volunteer state has a show to share. He jokes and laughs and interviews folks who love D&D. Yes, rolling bones with Ryan is a damn fine time to me. Ring ding did a little hidey ho, ring di diddly i o. Yes, rolling bones with Ryan is a damn fine time to me. Welcome to Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard. How is everybody doing this morning? Yes, you thought we only had one intro. Turns out today we have two intros. Yes, yes, of course. Thank you for bearing with me through my uh, rewriting and uh, rendition of the Scotsman song. I've uh, kind of been running low on ideas for my dramatic intro. And, uh, you know, I was talking with uh, Candace from the Knights and Nerds podcast today, and she mentioned that on the uh, the forthcoming episodes of uh, Knights and Nerds, she's come up with a few more limericks. And so I was then inspired to do a little bit of a little bit of a bard song for you guys today. So hopefully you enjoyed it. Uh, if you like my singing, please let me know, and I will try and do more of those. I've toyed around with uh, playing a bard a few times. It's never really come to fruition, but I, I would like to, to do it at some point, just so I can come up with my own songs to sing. It's something that a lot of bards talk about doing. Very few actually go through with it. The ones that do, I think, are hilarious. Uh, there's a great portion of uh, David Ewalt's book where the bard in his campaign, uh, his friend Phil, writes a song for his character that is to the tune of Johnny B. Good, and it's hilarious, mostly because on the audiobook, this super serious, deep-voiced narrator just deadpans the song, reading it with very little rhythm to it, and it just made me laugh. But no, stuff like that I, I really love and I really dig, and we'll, we'll get into that a little bit in today's rant, but first we've got a couple plugs. Uh, as always, you can listen to the show on Anchor FM. That's where we're hosted. You can also listen to this on uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Podcast Republic, and many more great places. Please uh, subscribe to me on the podcatcher of your choice. And uh, I'm going to ask that you guys go ahead and start leaving interviews, be it five stars or one star, whatever you feel like this little podcast deserves. After that opening number, how can you? you not give me five stars, but if you really don't like my singing, I guess I can eat a one-star review. Anyway, those reviews, be they five, four, three, two, or one stars, they help me get noticed and they help spread the word that Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard is the greatest interview podcast recorded in the Nashville area. Even that's probably a bit of a stretch, but anyway, it's a great podcast. I want more people to listen to it. Tell your friends about me. And also, if you want to kind to reach out to me, uh, give me some feedback, even see some miniatures that I'm painting. Uh, you should follow me on my social media on Twitter and Instagram. I am at Howard underscore Ryan Gregg. That is once again at Howard underscore Ryan Gregg on Twitter and Instagram. And before we jump into today's rant, uh, just a couple plugs. First and foremost, our guests today are Mystic Dragon Games. I got to talk with Mike and Kim and Steven, the founders of Mystic Dragon, on today's show. And I have to plug their Kickstarter that started up on Tuesday of this week, as I'm recording this, for the Mobius Deck of Wonders. It is a, uh, it's an accessory 
for playing D&D. We will get into what it actually is in the episode itself. I don't want to put that in the intro, but if you end up liking the interview, if you like Mike and Kim and Steven and you want to support them and you think their product sounds interesting, go to Kickstarter, look up the Mobius Deck of Wonders by Mystic Dragon Games and you will find them. Speaking of Kickstarters, of course, I have to mention my good friends at the Knights and Nerds podcast. As always, you should be listening to their podcast. It is, in my opinion, the best actual play podcast out there. Like I said at the top of the episode, I was talking with Candace this week. I talked to Candace a lot. I talked to Tim a lot. They're great people. I love their show. And right now, they are in the midst of a Kickstarter to get better recording equipment. Better recording equipment is always a good thing. And if you enjoy the show, you should really help them out. They've got some great support tiers that have some great prizes, including including a limerick from Fiance herself. Yes, a limerick. A thank you limerick from Fiance herself. How are you not already laying your money down? How are you not already throwing money at the phone or computer or whatever device it is you are listening to this podcast on? You should be doing that right now, and then you should immediately pick that money up and then go to Kickstarter and actually donate through there because throwing money at your device or screen does not actually do anything, it turns out. Who'd have thought? And the last plug for this week, before we get into today's rant, is of course for my good friend, player in one of my D&D campaigns, Namira, and her Twitch channel. So Namira streams horror games. She does it three days a week, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday from 6 to 9 p.m. Central. Uh, recently, she's been streaming Fatal Frame. Uh, she likes Resident Evil. She's done a lot of Silent Hill as well. Uh, every now and then, they do non-horror stuff. Uh, last week, they did a uh, special Mario Maker 2 stream. Uh, she streamed a, a Link to the Past before. All kinds of fun stuff to be had on there. Her and her uh, her boyfriend and their dog, Lucky, they they have a great channel there. So yes, if you if you like dogs, if you love beagles like I do, they have a beagle. His name is Lucky. He's adorable, even if he doesn't like me. And you should check out her channel. It's great. I'm in the chat every now and then, usually being grumpy because work sucks. It doesn't suck, but sometimes it does. But anyway, you should check her out now. Now that we have that out of the way, now that all my shameless plugs are done, let's get into today's rant from behind the screen. Yes, today's rant from behind the screen is going to be on the subject of character backstories. This is something that comes up a lot in this interview, so I just want to talk about this. As you guys have probably heard by now on the show, I am an aspiring writer. So I love to just write and write and write. And I will come up with backstories for my characters that sound like bad fantasy novels. And then with my current character in Randy's game, uh, Kieran Devitt, I'm basically writing a journal for Kieran Devitt that's kinda sorta turning into the first draft of a, uh, like a fantasy noir novel. It's definitely something I want to want to revisit in the future. But all that to say, I come up with extensive character backstories, and I honestly feel like everyone should, if not come up with an extensive backstory, come up with some kind of character backstory. Now, all of that to say, if you're playing in a, like, beer and pretzels dungeon crawl game where there's not really a story, it's all about just rolling dice and killing bugbears, maybe you don't need a backstory. If, if that's the kind of game your DM's running, he's probably going to get frustrated if you send him, like, 
two, three, four, fifteen pages of backstory and be like, what the hell am I supposed to do with this? So if that's the kind of game you're in, uh, you, backstory is not going to be as important. It's it's more about the gameplay. In fact, I, some people don't even like name their characters in games like that. They just make super powerful characters and sit around the table and call each other by their classes. It's really weird. I, I don't really like that style of play, but I won't begrudge anyone who does. But if you're playing in just your average D&D game where there's some kind of story or a super, especially in a super roleplay heavy D&D game, it's important for your character to be a part of the world and for your DM to have something to hook you into that world. So just the basics that you need for your character backstory, well, name, obviously, all, you know, your name, your class, your background, all that stuff is taken care of in character creation, if you're using 5th edition, that is. Uh, it's probably the same for the other editions, but beyond that stuff... It's important for you to know where your character came from and what their place in the world is. So if you, let's use the example of you're making a human fighter, okay? You're, you're going super, super basic. This is, maybe this is your first character. You are a human fighter, okay? You need to know where that character was born, what made them want to leave home, and how they became a fighter. Because because you don't just wake up one day and go, huh, I'm going to leave the farm, and then I'm a fighter now. No, you have to get training for that. Even in D&D, did they stumble upon some kind of sword master, some other adventurer out, out in the wilderness who took them under their wing? Did they go off and, and join the military for a while and get actual training? Uh, did they just get beat up a few times and, you know, kind of pick up fighting skills from just trial and error? Come up with a way that your character got to be, even at their first level, that's a character level. Not everyone has a character level in D&D. Your average NPC, even your average guard NPC, wouldn't have a level as a fighter. How did your character get to the point where they can say, alright, I am a level one fighter? Come up with that. Then come up with your character's personality. How do they view the world? And there's a great thing on the 5th edition character sheet where you have, associated with your background, a bond, a flaw, a goal, and an ideal. I, I think I got those right. And there are ones that are supplied in your in the PHB with the associated background that you choose. But what I've done, I have actually, with uh, with Kieran, I've gotten to the point where I'm confident enough in myself as a role player where instead of choosing one out of the book, I came up with my own. Because a lot of times you'll look at those book ones and be like, none of these really make sense for the character. And so if you have, you know, a goal, a flaw, an ideal that you feel like works better for your character, I say feel free to put them on the sheet because they don't really have any mechanical value. That stuff is just for your own personal benefit. If you just make stuff up, you're not going to break the game. Now, I will say if you're new, you might want to go with something in the book just so you don't end up with your flaw being he's just too awesome. Because I, I feel like there are people out there who get super invested in their characters. This has happened to me before. I, I've been so invested in my character and be like, he he's the paragon of virtue. He would never do anything terrible. He has no flaws. But I had to roleplay flaws. There was a time uh, with Cromwell where I had picked up a... It was a plus two scimitar. Actually, it was a plus two longsword that split into two plus one scimitars. 
It was awesome. Mo lured me right in with it. I pick it up, I attune to it. Turns out that damn thing's cursed. And this is actually something that's in the uh, in the DMG. I think it's called like the Avenging Sword or something like that. But basically, if you are damaged by another creature or uh, enemy, you have to make a wisdom save. And if you fail the wisdom save, you have disadvantage to attack anything but that creature. You also have disadvantage to use any weapon other than that weapon. Basically, the sword's thirsty. It wants blood, and if you don't give it blood, it's going to pester you until you do. And so in that moment, uh, Cromwell became... I, I always had Cromwell being very, very reserved, very quiet. He was like the strong, silent type. Basically just holding back all the, the pain and anger and betrayal that he felt over all the stuff that had happened in his background, the betrayal that his father put him through, the loss of his, his mentor, his uncle, earlier on in his life. And he was just, he was, he was quiet, he was reserved, even though he, you know, he was this, this lost heir to this mighty and terrible empire. He did his best to hide it, to the point of when people asked him who he was, he would not even say his name. He would just say, I am no one of consequence, which became a running joke in our game as we leveled up, because as you level, you gain notoriety in the world. And once you get to, like, level five or six, uh, you're, you're not as anonymous as you once were. People kind of know who you are. And once you get up to, like, level ten, forget about any kind of anonymity. Most people have a good idea of who you are. So we'd be walking around at like level 15 and people, we'd run into new people and I'd introduce myself and be like, I'm no one of consequence. And Mo would be like, no one of consequence, the guy who's running around with a bunch of murder hobos destabilizing the region. I'd be like, it, it, Cromwell's, Cromwell's trying to be anonymous. People find out who he is, they're going to try and kill him. But no, at that point, it was patently ridiculous for me to be like that. But anyway, back to this story. So Cromwell was trying to keep a low profile and trying to atone for the, the sins of his father and his grandfather, the sins of his past. But then he gets a hold of these weapons, and these weapons want him to kill and kill good. So at this point, Cromwell goes from being kind of reserved to in combat just being unhinged and wild. And I had to learn to roleplay my character like that. I didn't want my character to, to be crazy and bloodthirsty, but I had picked up these cursed items. And at first, I kind of struggled with it. I was trying to get rid of the swords and Mo had to tell me, you're, they're influencing your mind. You would not want to get rid of these things. You would, in fact, guard them jealously. And if anyone, like, tried to touch them, you'd react violently. So I had to do that. And we came to a point where Cromwell found someone who had acted as a revolutionary against his family and had, you know, committed, committed crimes against his family and killed people that Cromwell had known. And even though this guy, you know, was acting against a tyrannical empire, he had still, in many ways, caused Cromwell some trouble. And in his rage-addled state, Cromwell put the two swords together to make the plus-two longsword and executed the man in the name of Gwen, in the name of this dead empire. Cut his head off in front of everyone. And the rest of the party were like, um, Cromwell? 
are you okay? Cromwell's just like, I'm fine. Puts the swords back on his back. He's a criminal. Revolutionary. And so, you know, we, we, we went through that for a while. There was this time, we spent a lot of time moving through the Underdark, essentially. And in this time, Cromwell just became more and more bloodthirsty until we reached the town we were going to. And, you know, a cleric was able to free Cromwell from the curse. And he was able to kind of recenter himself. But that was a flaw that I had to play out in my character. And honestly, that's a part of playing a fully formed character in D&D. Uh, Ashley did this really effectively with Kaltarian. Like we talked about in her her episode, Kaltarian's flaw was that she had to be the best at something. Actually, her flaw was that she couldn't resist a pretty face. But her goal was to be the best at something. Anything. And in the end, it turned out that what she was being the best at was being just evil. Just super evil. And that's what, that's what she did. And that was an effective effective way to play her character. And honestly, that's that's what I expect from veteran players. I expect them to be able to play characters who are flawed, but not kind of disrupt the flow of the game. So when you're creating your character, think about, you know, what makes them a cool character, what makes them awesome, but also think about, you know, the, the, the flaws they have, the, the kind of ways that they could grate on other characters, the ways that your character could upset the party members or upset maybe an NPC. I mean, to, to use myself as, as an example, again, uh, the current character that I'm playing, Kieran Devitt, he is very acerbic. He's very kind of nasty towards people sometimes. And uh, he kind of flies off the handle in combat situations. He sometimes struggles to think strategically and uh, just kind of rushes in headlong and slices people up. And uh, it's cost him multiple times now. Uh, the first encounter I had, I ran straight into an ambush and almost died because the guy I was attacking was a caster and he cast hold person on me. And so that that almost ended badly. And that's that's a thing that that Kieran does and that's a thing that uh me as a player I'm going to have to role play Kieran either learning to not get nearly killed and still do that or learning to think more strategically. And so that's going to be part of his part of his development over time is learning, you know, you have a heavy crossbow, why not use it every now and then instead of running in with your swords like a like a crazy man. You're you're not actually a tank. I mean, he, he's a ranger, he's DPS, but he's not a tank. He's got only 22 hit points. He's level 3 and his AC is 16. He's he's shockingly easy to hit right now. So, with all that said, let's get back to the backstory itself. A lot of times there's there's a concern about how long your backstory should be. As a DM, I'm looking for two to four paragraphs. It's perfectly fine. Just give me the basics. Where you're from, what you want, your attitude. Give me where you came from and what you're looking for so that I've got something to plan for your character. I like to give characters one or two stories of their own where they can kind of feel like they're a part of the world. Like in uh, in the game I ran with Mo and Ashley and all of them the first game I ever ran, I did my very best to give everyone their own story, and I feel like I did well. David, who we're going to talk with next week, uh, I, I struggled a little bit with his. He's not really that kind of player. Like, uh, he had kind of an interesting backstory dealing with finding his father in Moe's campaign, and eventually he got all the stuff to kind of complete that quest, but he never actually did it. He he just kind of lost interest in it. He was more interested in how much damage can I deal with spells. And we'll talk about him 
we'll talk more about that kind of on, on next week's episode. But I, I kind of sort of gave him a story with, uh, he was playing a cleric in my campaign. He was a knowledge cleric. So I had his god show up at one point to, to help everyone out. And then uh, Austin's characters, well, I mean, you, you all heard about Bronn Bronzebeard. He had many stories, and Braun first showed up in, in my campaign that I was DMing. Austin was a little bit difficult in, in my game because he switched characters so often. It was hard to give him a story for his characters. But again, I had uh, he ended up with a, uh, a Kenku Forge cleric that I, I ended up having uh, his god show up as well towards the end. And that's they had this moment where the god showed up and said, you're about to fight kind of the ultimate evil that this world has faced. You will need help. And and so the forge god uh, embodied Austin's character and had him forge out these magical weapons. But then uh, Moe's character had a very extensive story because his his father, who he his character had a lot of conflict with, his father was fully in favor of this uh, evil regime that they were fighting against, and he was fully in opposition to it. And so at some point, he thought his father was dead, but it turns out his father was alive and kind of in charge of this opposition force that was designed to kind of create chaos within the Empire. His father became a major figure towards the end of the campaign, and Mo did that story very well and had a lot of fun with it and uh ashley had a a cool story with her her uh, tabaxi ranger where she was trying to study humans and and how humans were and she ended up encountering this uh this leader of a group called the seekers of knowledge and they were just they were a secret society dedicated to preserving history the way it actually happened as opposed to the way that the Empire was writing it. And so she ended up joining the society and really bonding with the leader of the society, Sir Aiden. And there was all kinds of other stuff. Uh, Lucas dropped out early, so he didn't really have a story. Uh, Joe had a great story where not only did his character end up accidentally doing psychedelics and figuring out that he was in a D&D game, but he also took over a town and declared himself king of that town and kind of sort of developed an empire out of that town. <laughs> and then, uh, oh, Kyle. Kyle had a great backstory where he, kind of like Cromwell, developed developed a little bit of a surrogate father relationship with uh, Cromwell's uncle, uh, Abelard McGuen. And that we we kind of explored a little bit, again, towards the end, after Abelard had died, we, you know, we had a flashback session where, you know, we, we played out Gebetto and Abelard's first meeting, and there, there was a bonding moment. It, it was kind of an emotional moment of sorts. It gave a lot of, uh, gave a lot of purpose to Gibetto and why he had dedicated his life to essentially being a spy for Abelard. And so all of that worked really well with everyone's backstory and everyone enjoyed kind of being a part of that world and you know being deeply involved in that world and i enjoyed in you know ingraining them in that world and i'm really looking forward now to my current D game that i'm running because we're getting out of fandelver and we're getting into their backstories now and we're finding things out and I, i've got multiple stories planned for each character and so the the story is going to shift from them doing things in this world to the world being about them and them discovering things about themselves and so this leads me to kind of my final point about character backstories since you know, we, we do have a fairly lengthy interview to get to today. While you should be specific with your backstory, 
so the DM kind of knows where you fit within the world. Leave it open-ended so that the DM can tailor it to the world and create cool stuff that surprises you. Leave some loose ends in your backstory. Don't, don't fully, don't write a novel and then say, this is everything that happened to the character before the game. Leave some stuff open-ended. Leave it for the DM to be like, okay, again, I'll use the example of uh, Kieran Devitt. Kieran is a half-elf. Kieran does not know if he was orphaned or not. He does not remember his father. He never met his father at all. Uh, his father is an elf. All he remembers is at one point seeing a portrait of an elven man in armor with a sword, and he assumed that, okay, this is my father. He was a soldier. But even now, as an adult, he can't remember exactly the painting. He barely remembers his mother, and at some point, he just remembers her not being around anymore. He doesn't know if she's dead or not. And so he's adopted by a merchant family, they raise him, they school him, and at some point when he's a teenager, they are found dead. And again, he does not know if they were murdered. He does not know if it was suicide. He doesn't know what happened. He doesn't know who killed them. And so there's a lot of blank spaces in my backstory. I, I know what got me into Waterdeep and with these characters that he's running around with. I know all that stuff. But I'm leaving it up to Randy to decide what happened to his parents. Is his father still alive? Is his mother still alive? Who killed his adopted parents? All that stuff. There's all kinds of open space for for Randy to do whatever he wants, and that's something he, he told me that he liked about my backstory, that there was enough open space for him to kind of mess around with it and, and for him to, to surprise me a little bit. So don't don't make it so that you're, you know exactly what's coming in your story. Leave it a little bit open-ended. Leave it up to the interpretation of the DM. Let the DM throw some surprises at you. And that's, that's one thing I have to pay a compliment to my players. They all have specific backstories, but they're open enough that I can throw surprises at them. And I am looking forward to surprising them. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I think they're going to really enjoy it. So that is going to do it for today's Rent from Behind the Screen. I really got on a roll with this one. Um, so this is going to be a long episode. We got a great interview now with the founders of Mystic Dragon Games. I hope you guys enjoy it. All right, everyone, as we talked about at the opening of the show, I have on here the uh, the founders of Mystic Dragon Games. Ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce Michael Walker and his wife and Stephen Dudley. How you doing? How you doing? Hi. I'm doing well. How are you guys today? Great. Thanks for having us. We appreciate it. Oh, no problem. No problem at all. All right, guys, so we are going to start this interview... Uh, the same way that we start every interview, we've got these questions that we ask everybody. So first and foremost, how did you guys get into RPGs and D&D? Did we lose Mike and Kim? I think so. Uh, I started uh, playing RPGs with my brother uh, when I was a kid. Uh, it goes way back. Uh, my brother and I... Uh, uh, saw the the player's handbook to the uh, old D and D, the first edition, uh, in a, a hobby store, and and our father of all people actually wanted us, you know, suggested that we get it, which is really odd because he's 
he's not a gamer at all. So my brother bought it, and we started playing at an early age, and uh, played for many years, and absolutely loved it. So we've been—I've at least been uh, connected to it since I was a kid. And then uh, there's a long period where uh, I didn't play, and then uh, uh, as an adult, uh, we came back to it, and uh, we started playing a game with uh, with Mike actually running it, and. Uh, we played that one. We've been playing that one for about four years now. So, uh, so for me, um, you know, I'm a, a child of the '70s and '80s, and when I was growing up, there was a lot of taboo surrounded by Dungeons and Dragons, uh, particularly Dungeons and Dragons, because of Satanism and all that stuff. And and so I I didn't really get exposed to D and D until in my 20s. Uh, but one uh, when I was in high school, there was a, a kid during lunch period. Uh, I didn't really know his role playing at the time. I didn't know what it was, but we had a great time. But he would create these scenarios, like we're like um, Indiana Jones like characters exploring Inca ruins, and he rolled all the dice secretly. We had no character sheets, no rules, nothing, and it was a total blast. And I couldn't wait for every lunch period. We didn't even eat lunch. We just sat there and played. And I didn't know what it was. I didn't know that was role-playing. Um, and it wasn't until I was in my early 20s that I got um, connected with Dungeons and & Dragons. And from there on, I was hooked. And I, I immediately... I have a very creative side to me, so I immediately wanted to start running games. And just, you know, and that's how this whole thing kind of came about. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, I, I'm relatively new to it, um, re- really since I met my husband, Michael. <laughs> so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, my brother played throughout my whole childhood, but I just kind of always thought it was weird, and I didn't really understand what it was. So when I met Michael, um, we were good friends with Stephen and, and his wife, Madeline, and he suggested we start, you know, a little gaming group with the four of us. And Madeline was new to it as well. So that was a good, gentle way to get involved. And, and we never stopped. Yeah. <laughs> that same campaign we started uh, four years ago. Same characters, yep. same campaign. Gotcha. Well, Kim, my wife is going through pretty much the exact same thing that you went through. Uh-huh. I, I am... <laughs> initiating her into the world of role-playing along with our roommate and uh, two of her friends. Oh, fun. Yep. Yeah, in fact, that group, I don't know, uh, because I missed Steven's answer, but uh, so Mobius Spin, the person behind the Mobius Deck of Wonders, is Steven's character from that that game session, that first um, uh, group that Kim started with us. And so uh, the first game, Stephen, it was was it first edition D and D for you? Yeah, gotcha. it was the, you know, the the original um, player's handbook that came out. I, I'm pretty sure it it came out before the the Dungeon Master's Guide, mm-hmm. and uh, so it, it must it was late 70s. I'm thinking maybe 1990 or 1977, I think, mm-hmm. when it came out. Uh, but yeah, so first edition. And we didn't even have the DMs guide. We, my brother, just started making stuff up, and uh, and it was awesome. Mm-hmm. We were we were hooked. And then Michael, it was that uh, whatever 
system that your friend came up with at lunch? Here. Yeah, I I don't even know if it was a system. I think he was just yeah, it was totally through his imagination, and uh, it was just it was really fun because we got to explore these ink, ancient Incan ruins, and uh, I just remember it being really deadly. <laughs> we, we're, we're always dying, but it was just so much fun, and it was all in our heads, all in our imagination. And then my first exposure to D and D was uh, second edition AD and D. And from there, all kinds of other systems, Palladium, Shadowrun, uh, you name it. We, we did it all. What edition are you guys running that, uh, that Kim started with? Uh, so uh, we, we're doing Pathfinder 1.0. Gotcha. I, I just have so much material that I've bought over the years and through Hero Lab. Um, I thought it would be, you know, I might as well use all those resources I have. And uh, that's what we, we use as our, our, you know, just like any creative uh gm you you take uh, a system and you kind of modify it here and there here and there to fit your players or to fit your own needs but by and large it's pathfinder and uh if you guys can remember uh who were your first characters well that's going to be easy for kim (laughs) go ahead kim you start (laughs) my uh my character is a druid um her name is kara and uh, now she, what level are we? Seventeenth. Seventeenth level, yeah. yeah. So from first level to seventeenth. So nice. Yeah. A druid uh, fits. I thought fit her personality quite well because oh, she yeah. is the lover of all animals in true. real life. So yeah. <laughs> it seemed like a natural fit. Yeah. And she plays it beautifully. She plays the druid, as Stephen will attest to. Uh, for somebody who has no had no experience in role playing games, she comes up with some of the most creative uses of spells and she's really gotten the group out of a lot of uh really hairy jams in last minute coming up with ideas for spells um to be used in a different way than they were intended and and things like that um and it's been really fun to see her uh grow and blossom in the you know the role-playing realm and for me it was uh uh, aside from the Indiana Jones character that we played at lunch, uh, when it, my first A and D character was very unimaginative, but uh, it was a druid as well named Alanon, uh, and I and I uh, created him in the image of Alanon from the uh, Sword of Sonara uh, series by Terry Brooks. Gotcha, Stephen. So uh, my first character was. Uh, ranger, his name was Landry the Wanderer, and uh, we actually played played that character for. Uh, it's actually not my first character; it's the first character I actually identify with. We played that character for a couple of years. Uh, my very first character was named Prince John, and he was uh, a fighter. And uh, we didn't really play him uh, very much. Uh, my brother wound up uh, running some other uh, games, and I I don't really remember what those characters were because uh, w- once I started playing with Landry the Wanderer that's when we really kind of started uh, sinking into a, a long-term campaign but uh, yeah he was a ranger my first character was a ranger as well oh two druids and two rangers really interesting <laughs> yeah they're pretty fun to play I mean mm-hmm. you know I like I like the wilderness I like the outdoors so I kind of gravitated towards that all right so if you guys could describe your play styles as uh, players and uh, for those of you who GM as GMs, how would you describe it? Steven? Well, I would say uh, play style is, is not quite w- 
we're not really uh, stat, what I call stat junkies. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're really more uh, about the story. So and and all the games that I've I've played played in, uh, even my brother um, r- when he was running the games, uh, everybody was either an artist or artistic in some way. So we we always gravitated um, to where uh, the story was king, and the stats were were simply there to support it. Basically, the way it's supposed to be, the the way I thought it, it should be. So playing style was based off of that. Uh, we try to stay stay in character, and and you know how it goes when you first start new characters. It takes a little bit to kind of get warmed up and used to the character. But once you're there, then uh, you're basically in the story. You become that person, then you're in the story. So gotcha. I would say mine is similar as well. I I like to come up with. Uh, on the rare occasions when I get to play, I like to come up with, uh, I always come up with the character story or the character idea first before I even decide on a class, a race, or, um, you know, stat, you know, a roll of stats or anything. I like to, um, I'm also uh, a writer, so um, that's kind of where I start from. I start with the character first, background, want to get to know them. Well, I was just going to say that, um, you Michael as a GM when he runs our games the entire game is immersive I mean he's he uses a lot of props we use our miniatures um, he 3d prints some of the props <laughs> and then of course he loves to buy stuff all the time <laughs> always new pictures and, and bridges and ships and um, he uses lots of maps and um, puzzles like if, if our characters come into a situation where there's a puzzle we have to solve he'll have a puzzle for us to manipulate or to figure out on paper um so i think that really makes it an uh, entertaining it also really helps us to get into the game because not only are our characters doing stuff we're physically doing things as well so i also like uh the way mike runs the game uh because he, he's what i consider uh, a true neutral gm so a lot of uh, GMs I've played with in the past, they turn into what I call a killer GM. <laughs> mm-hmm. Either they get tired of the game or or they, they start leaning towards one direction. And Mike never does that. It's always a, a point of neutrality and fairness. So, mm-hmm. but, but it's challenging, too, you know, which is, makes it fun for me. I, and I, I consider that's probably the ultimate, char- the ultimate compliment somebody could give me is, is that. Because I do try to uh, remain neutral, um, um, you know. I try to to encourage you know character interaction and and with the NPCs, um, but I also want it to be fun and challenging, too. You know, so I don't um, you know I don't pull any punches unless it's de- going to be detriment to the story. <clears throat> um, to highlight that, um, the first game we played. Uh, they were trapped on a deserted island, and uh, so they got to really know the NPCs that were on the ship with them. And when one of the NPCs died, and this is only after the third, maybe our fifth game session, uh, it brought a lot, a lot of the players to tears. They actually were so connected to these NPCs that they were they actually felt the actual loss to that character. Well, in fact, we named our ship after. Yeah, so, and they, they wanted to commandeer in a ship later on. They named it after the NPC that died. You know, yeah. so mm-hmm. 
I really love I love that because it, it uh, you know sometimes uh, in some games I've played in NPCs are just seen as uh, cannon fodder or insignificant. And I really like it when the players really get involved with the NPCs because that's really part of the story too. You know, the NPCs are part of the, part of the world and part of the story. If you guys can possibly pick out of all the games you've played or all the games you've run, which game do you think was the most fun for you? Uh, for, for me, running the game was easily the game that we're that that I'm talking about with Steven and Madeline and Kim. Mm-hmm. Very first game. We've been running it for four years now. It's the longest campaign that I've ever ran, you know, continuously. So, uh, Stephen, what about you? What What's the most fun game that you've been a part of? Well, before it was uh, the one that I played the the Ranger years ago. That that was a blast. But the, I agree with Mike. The the one that we're playing now uh, is my certainly my top. Uh, I I have played uh, quite a bit of. Uh, Cthulhu, the Call of Cthulhu, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, we were fortunate enough to have some two really good GMs to run those, so they were extra creepy. So they were really fun. But uh, but my top is uh, is the this game, uh, the, this Pathfinder game with uh, Mike and Kim uh, and my wife by far. All right, and uh, Kim, I'm guessing you have uh, the same answer that they had. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Gotcha. <laughs> when you invest so much into a game, it mm-hmm. definitely becomes your favorite. Now, thinking back over that same period of time, can you think of the least fun game you've ever been a part of? Uh, I have several. <laughs> um, you know, when I was first getting started uh, playing in my early 20s, um, I had a really great GM, um, but we had so many people that wanted to play that, uh, you know, sometimes we would start a game session and then people would start trickling in and then more people would start trickling in. Okay, make a character, make a character. And the game would constantly be paused or, you know. I remember one game session, we spent all Saturday and it took us all day just to get through one combat session because more players kept at And we must have had 10 or 12 players by the end of the, the night. And, uh, you know, that was... That was not very fun, you know. <laughs> Obviously, it's fun to be around your friends and, you know, and that sort of thing. But when you're really urgent and wanted to play, like I was a new player, so I really wanted to play, you know. I, I just wanted to play, you know. I, and so, um, yeah, that was probably my... I would agree with that. I mean, uh, every role-playing... I haven't really played a bad role-playing game that I can think of, but it's usually been the uh, the player bloat that... uh would be an you know an issue. Yeah, yeah. I once, I once tried, tried to run, to run Deadlands Dead for nine people, and it was the first time I'd ever run Deadlands, and the first time <laughs> all of them had ever played it. That was a mistake. Yeah, I could totally see that. <laughs> I was even I was told by Shane Hensley himself that that was a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> nice on this very show. And, and you're and you're, and you're like, yep. Yeah. <laughs> I knew that now. <laughs> yeah. and But, you know, I'm sure you had good intentions. I'm sure everyone had good intentions. It's just that, you know, it, it's uh, there's always some limitations. You know, it's like, um, you know, when you have so many party members, it's hard to give everyone a little 
uh, um, a little um, highlight, you know, or give, mm-hmm. you know, in the game, you know, when you have so many players, you know, it's hard to everyone to get a turn in or, you know, uh, a role-playing um, event, you know, that highlights their character. Uh, and it really and it really bogs down the game. And then when you add the factor that all the players were new and probably didn't know the rules, yeah, I can totally see that being a... Yeah, and as everyone knows, you know, combat takes forever, so... Mm-hmm. And, yeah, in most systems, yeah. Now, for everyone, if you could make an RPG for any fictional universe that does not have one, or you could take an old RPG that hasn't been revisited it a long time and give it a modern rule set, what would it be? I, I, no. okay, you go. I think I would create an RPG for the Chronicles of Narnia. That is an excellent answer. <laughs> yeah, that's excellent lots answer. Of, lots of creatures and magic and bad guys and good guys and yeah. Yeah, I'm surprised that hasn't been done already. <laughs> and they've done the Wheel of Time and Lord of the Rings. Steven, what's yours? I would have said the Hobbit. That's already been done, though. Uh, I love the Hobbit. Yeah, that's a good. I'm one. just, I'm just kind of a fantasy junkie. But you know, actually, there, I, I probably would do Star Frontiers, because you know, I, I've always wanted a good space game, and I, I know the, you know, the Warhammer 40k uh, delivers on the, the space genre, but it's also kind of a, uh, you know, with chaos and all that's very twisted. Mm-hmm. But uh, probably Star from Tears uh, would be one of them. But I I really lean more towards the fantasy stuff. So yeah, yeah. For me, I would say probably probably the Sword of Sonara series, uh, just because that was really my first exposure to. Uh, I was late bloomer in in all the the normal um, you know uh, comics and. Uh, and role playing and stuff like that. My parents moved a lot around a lot, so um, I didn't get exposed to a lot of that stuff later. So really, my first fantasy series that I read was Sword of Sonara, and I really loved it. So I would probably say something in that universe. And uh, this is going to be the last of our introductory questions before we dive into what you guys do. The answer to this question can be as philosophical or as sophomoric as you want it to be. If you could put anything on a T-shirt, what would it be? <laughs> if you put anything on a T-shirt, what would it yeah. be? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Gosh, man, I've never thought of that. We're <laughs> well, mm. all stumped. Uh, you've totally uh, stumped. <laughs> and I used to have a T-shirt company, so I'm I'm so ashamed <laughs> that I can't come up with something off the top of my head. Um, hmm. Uh, I I would probably go with a movie quote because. Um, Kim kind of, um, she gets a little uh, tired of my uh, movie quotes and stuff because I'll just quote them. She goes, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> no, I would probably put an obscure movie quote that only like true fans of that movie would would get. Like maybe um, s- something from, um, from uh, Conan the Barbarian or... Um, you know, uh, uh, Beastmaster. It's one of those old seventies, eighties classic fantasy movies. Mm-hmm. So I guess the only thing I, 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 that comes to mind uh, would would be something that's personal, and meaningful, and it would be actually it'd be the character, uh, one of the characters in the lore 
behind our project here. Uh, this character was a friend of ours who, who had passed away. So I, I would probably uh, want his uh, his character on, on a t-shirt. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I I mean I, I don't think I could top that. <laughs> I think that, that would be great. Mm. Yeah. Well the, well the Mystic Dragon game game's logo is pretty cool too. <laughs> that it is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's good. that's a good point, Stephen. Yeah, one of our players that was in this four person game, we've had well, we had another player as well, but um he passed away uh, during during the campaign and I've ran him as an NPC the entire time uh, in his honor uh, and kept him alive and well in the campaign. And he's going to have an integral part in our universe and our world uh, going forward in our future projects. Gotcha. Yeah. And you've done a good job, Mike, at uh, carrying on his essence for sure. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. So moving into questions about mystic dragon specifically, uh, how did you guys meet? Well, um, I met Stephen um, before I met my wife, Kim, actually. Uh, Stephen and I were lived in the same uh, small town in Hutto, Texas, right outside of Austin. And we had some mutual friends um, that, that, um, that I had never met Stephen before because he was working in the oil field at the time. And so he was always away weeks and weeks at a time. And I would always hear his name. And people mentioning fun stories that, you know, growing up with him and stuff. And uh, I just thought he sounded like a, a neat guy that I'd like to get to know. And then uh, at some point there was uh, some kind of, uh, Stephen, maybe you can help me remember, some kind of event. It was a, it was it a... Uh, I think uh, it might have been uh, one of the those annual game gatherings that we did. Well, was it there? It was either that or, or, or just one of the Friday no, night. Gaming. I was thinking about okay, yeah. I think it was one of our geek fests. Uh, we had a, lo- a yearly or, or twice a year gathering of just close friends that we would uh, get together and play board games with. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think yeah, maybe that's where we first met. And then and then we went on a, a camping trip to what was that event that we went to? It, it, that that event was tied to uh, the Society of Creative Anachronism uh, SCA, and uh, that's something I. I I did it for a little bit when I was younger, and we were, we had friends that still did that, uh, and uh, the site was in Huntsville, Texas. So we were asked to uh, to bring my tent out there. I have a, a large 20 by 30 medieval period marquee tent, so we were asked to bring that out there and uh, set it up so they could use it kind of as a tavern. So, so yeah, Mike so and I, you know, we, we just really just kind of met, and we went out there and, and did that, and and uh, had a good time. Got to know each other pretty well, pretty quick. Yeah, that's where everyone, or where everyone goes, and they dress up in their garb, you know, their their uh, period garb, and just have fun. And there's there's different events that go on through, throughout the day, and and then at night, everyone kind of gathers in this giant pavilion tent that that uh, Stephen owned to uh, you know play music and you know libations. And have a good time. Yeah, and, and, and Mike and I, uh, we we basically just hit it off. I mean, we it was like easy easy friends because we're we're a lot alike, and uh, it's just one of those those things, you know, when you meet somebody and it's just it's just kind of meant to be that that you're going to be friends, and that's the way it was. 
And then uh, Kim and I, uh, I'm, as I mentioned, were writers. Um, Kim and I were, were bloggers for for a long time there, and I came across some of Kim's writing that I really enjoyed. I used to be an editor for a um, blog competition site called Dude Writes, and it was only mostly for men because uh, in the t- in the time period, I don't know if it's the, that way now, but most of the blogging was dominated by by stay-at-home moms, and so. Um, this this uh, site was created so that men could have a creative outlet for their stories and stuff and they had weekly competitions and then I was invited to be an editor for that and so but once every couple of months we would have a ladies only competition weekly competition of you know women that we writers that we really, really enjoyed we'd invite them for, into the competition and Kim was the first person that I a female that I invited because I really enjoyed her writing it's really so easy to read and flows so well and she's very witty and i just enjoyed it so much and then from there we just developed a a, a friendship and um and it just kind of grew from there and uh now we're married <laughs> gotcha. yeah gotcha. And, that, and mike and kim are like in my mind are like the perfect couple because they're like they really are two of the nicest people on the planet. That's so so you no, we're not. You're, you're, you're very lucky if you if you get to know them because they're super nice. The world needs more people like Mike and Kim, for sure. Uh, Steven's okay. Yeah, uh, I'm all right. I'm I'm, I'm kind of mean sometimes. <laughs> so what was it that made you guys decide uh, to kind of go into business with uh with rpgs as it were so uh kim and i um uh so i actually got kim hooked on uh untraditional board games as well yeah (laughs) and um and so we're both very creative people um and we just love playing board games we love doing the role-playing games and we're both you know writers and I have a graphic design background as well. And I, we just decided we would like to make our own games. And so we actually started, before we were in our company, just started developing uh, various board games. And we have a number that are in various stages of development. And uh, some that are in prototype stage. And some that are you know still just ideas. Um, and then... Uh, when we moved to Colorado, um, you know, we just loved it here so much, and we're like, you know, I really like to be able to enjoy uh, the mountains more, and it'd be nice if we could work from home or, you know, have a, a business where we'd have a nine-to-five job. And so, and we'd been talking about it for years, and so we said we're just going to do it. So this past February, we formed Mr. Dragon Games, LLC, and um, then was well, what is our first project going to be? And I, I wanted, uh, we, Kim and I talked, and we wanted to start what we a smaller project, something that was more manageable because uh, we both have full-time jobs, and something that um, we could build our brand on, uh, but something that still would be uh, high quality and also be something that would be imaginative and creative and also be something that we think that gamers would love and enjoy. And there's a lot, you know, especially with the self-publishing out there now, there's a lot of really good um, 
self-publishing products out there. And, and, um, and so I was trying to f- come up with something that would be unique and different, uh, but also very usable. And so uh, one morning I was having one of those lucid, uh, half-awake, half-sleep moments, which I send, tend to get my best ideas from. Um, and I thought about this magic deck that um, was infused with the power and essence of a wizard. So all the cards would have some connection to this wizard. I mean, there's a lot of great um, magic cards decks out there and, you know, um, um, uh, books and stuff with magic items. But I don't think I've ever seen where they're all tied together in a a central character or, or, you know, uh, linked in some way. Um, so the mystic, the uh, so I, I approached Stephen because I was like, well, there's only one wizard I know that would be perfect for this, and he's, he's already got a character that's fully developed. And and so I approached Stephen. Would he like to go on on this project with us? And can we use Mobius Spin as our mascot and for the wizard that's behind this de- magical deck? And of course, he wholeheartedly agreed. And that's where it all sprang from. And what turned out to what was supposed to be a small project has turned into uh, a pretty uh, large project. Um, but it's been amazing journey the entire way. Um, you know, Stephen and, and Kim and I work really well together. You know, and it's not just we we're not all yes yes men to each other. We challenge each other um, on all aspects from the beginning. Our number one goal is we want to make we may be a small company. But we want to make quality products that people love and want to use and can use for you know a long time, and so that's where the Mobius deck of wonders sprang from. Yeah, and the quality thing was certainly uh, we all agreed on that initially because uh, you know you know we've been playing for a long time and we've had plenty plenty of years and time. Uh, to figure out how we would like to do something, I know how I would like what what I would want to see, and it's like uh, above all things, we we really got to try to deliver something that's uh, of great quality. So we were definitely uh, on the same page. Tell me some of the background behind this deck. Who is Mobius Spin, and and where is it that this deck came from? Stephen, I'll, I'll hand that over to you. Well, uh, Moby's Spin, it, uh, he's a dwarf uh, who uh, comes from a family of uh, scholars, uh, primarily engineers, uh, architect, ar- uh, architects. Um, but he's kind of an, an enigma in that he um, came into um, using magic in, in, a, in kind of a unique way. Uh, he, he was encountered by a, uh, a magical being that gave him something. And so it led him on to this, this path of, of uh, discovery of, you know, what is this, this thing called magic? So he uh, had a mentor that, that kind of helped get him started. And so he, he kind of uh, started out on, on his life uh, trying to figure out how the universe works and, and what is this thing called magic. So... Uh, many years go by, and uh, it's a pretty pretty long story. But he he winds up uh, becoming a wizard king, and uh, 
the idea of, of creating a deck and spreading out his uh, his essence and his being a, a, across this deck was uh, to help preserve uh, his ability in a way, uh, though uh, perhaps indirectly, uh, to help continue uh, to maintain the balance in the world after he is no longer alive. So it was kind of a way, um, you know, things were happening in the world that he uh, uh, was concerned about, uh, that since he was a king and he, and he certainly was a force in the world, that, you know, if he was gone, then what would happen, you know, what kind of a void would, hap- would happen, what would, would rush in to fill it. So he, he figured that, you know, this deck would be a good tool uh, to actually uh, perhaps uh, by fate put it in front of uh, worthy individuals who would find pieces of his magic and and use it to their benefit to help maintain the balance. So that's kind of uh, a quick run of of who he is, but it's also kind of a quick description of of what the deck is. So the the deck itself is... It is like a source of power. It contains a little bit of Spin's intelligence, his wisdom. Uh, and so Spin wanted to preserve that. He wanted to leave some piece of himself behind um, because he doesn't. He didn't know what was going to happen when he left, left the Earth. And so the idea is this uh, deck, when it's found, um, you know, it, it, it appears to be just a normal deck of cards until the adventurer comes across it. it. It can come across it any number of ways that the GM wants. And so when it's found and when it's touched, it actually reveals its two form and it compels them to, to select a card. And then so the idea behind the deck is the deck will itself will be a handout, a prop. Um, we'll have a sleeve that goes over the deck, so it ha- we'll have our logos, the, the UPC codes. And so it'll serve two, two purposes. It'll protect the deck when it's not in use. And then uh, when you take the sleeve off, you have this pristine prop that doesn't have any um, writing or uh, you know logos on it that you can use as the handout. So when the player or the character in the game touches this deck, you use the GM, take your deck out, and you hand it to the player and have them choose a card. And then when they choose a card... At random, it immediately becomes bond to them for life, and it and then it it reveals its powers to them. Because spin, uh, these are all the these are all stemming from spin's will, how he would want these to be to use. And then the deck disappears, and then the GM can make it pop up in a different part of the world if he wish. And when when the characters find them, the deck could be filled with any number of cards that they want, um, and. Because the cards don't contain any rules on them or any text, it frees up the GM to use them however they wish. And even though we're going to provide rules uh, that will come in the deck uh, in a printout um, for each individual card, the GM's not locked in when they hand that card to that character, to that player, how to use that card. They'll have their full use of that card however they want to use it in any game system they want. And it doesn't even have to be magical. It could be just a visual reference of everyday items or key items in their story um, that they want to use as a visual reference in the game. Yeah, and it's kind of like, you know, uh, we've all probably uh, repurposed items, uh, antiques or whatnot, candlesticks, mugs, or, you know, 
an antique box or something, uh, repurposed it for use in a game, and uh, that that's that's kind of the way these cards are. It's like you, you can use them for whatever you want, you know. So, but but at the same time, we have our lore behind it and what we intend for it to be. But there's that flexibility there that that we think is uh, very useful and, and unique. Yeah, uh, and the illustration on the cards are beautiful. We have uh, three amazing artists um, that, that that worked with us on this project: uh, Alejandra De La Cruz and Tatiana Yamshomanov. Uh, they did primarily our, all the artwork uh, on the cards, the the, the tech deck um, through our direction. And then uh, Cody Wilborn, he did all the artwork for our Kickstarter video. And then he also did, I think, a card illustration that's going to be a Kickstarter uh, stretch goal. And we just had some amazing artists. And the and when you see these decks, even when you see them on the screen, but when you hold them in your hand, the cards, uh, they're just really beautiful pieces of art. And it really entices you to want to use them in your game and figure out a way to incorporate them in your game somehow. Now, as far as uh, playtesting goes, did this show up in your campaign? No, this this showed up in my imagination. Gotcha. But I will say this. So um, Griff and um, Chris, from the, the makers of the Secrets of Blackmore documentary, it's uh, the story of uh, David... Um, uh, what's his name? Uh, David... Can't remember his name, but uh, anyway, it's the kind of the history of D and D, like the very beginnings of D and D, uh, along with Arneson, David Arneson, you know, Gary Gygax, all those guys. Before D and D was even D and D, they they did this documentary, and so one evening they brought over um, one of the original dungeon crawl ever created, uh, called uh, the the Dungeon of uh, uh, Tornsborg. And they ran us through this dungeon, and it was old-school rules. Like, these are the rules, really old-school rules. And Griff was running the game, and the deck was just laying by him, and there was a critical point in the game. He picked up the deck, shuffled through the cards, and within 15 seconds implemented one of those cards in the game that wound up having a critical uh, role and wound up saving the party, you know, from certain death. So I was really proud that here we are with an old school gamer and an old school system, one of the first games DD game systems ever created, and our cards were implemented flawlessly in that system. It just to me proved that these cards are could be so versatile and usable in any 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 situation. Sounds awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I was, I, I was pretty impressed as an old school gamer. I mean, I thought that was really cool. <laughs> now, I've read some of the uh, the mythology that's already been put up on uh, your blog, on your website, and it seems to me that there is a very expansive world kind of behind this deck in in the shadows that you guys aren't quite ready to reveal yet. Are there plans to expand the universe with more products in the future? Most definitely. <laughs> Ab- absolutely, yes. <laughs> yes. In fact, we were working up till 2 o'clock in the morning last night on our first expansion um, for this deck. So, or Not for the deck itself, but for the universe. 
uh, in the world. So most definitely, Spin is going to be uh, one of many of characters that are going to be driving forces in the, the world creation and uh, definitely something we're going to be fleshing out um, in future projects. And uh, Spin and Kara and Norel and Jordy, all the four main characters from our main campaign will be uh, intricately um, involved in that process. Aside from the deck, uh, what else do you guys have available now or what do you have available uh, that people can buy from your your website now uh so right now the only thing that's available is our free demo uh print and play mobius deck which is uh six cards from the 40 uh that's planned for the deck uh minimum of 40 we have some stretch goals and pledge levels that hopefully will unlock and uh people will pledge for that will can create uh many more cards for the deck um so we have the six card play that they can download for free and then we have of course our shirts and eventually um you know if we get funded we'll also have our own dice and that i want to mention that mark sherbert from uh ice cream dice uh, who's been integral in helping us um behind the scenes you know, setting up our campaign, giving us advice. Um, but he also designed our dice that's going to be, um, we have two sets of dice that he designed for us that has been, uh, people have been super excited about. Um, yeah, they look awesome. And they have our logo or modified version of our logo on them. And um, they're going to be available. The one set, the Dragon's Mana, which the fans... Uh, came we had a, a naming contest for the dice and they came up with a name for our first very first set dice set and uh, that those will be available at a pledge level or add-on and then we'll have a stretch goal to hopefully unlock to to get the other set of dice which are more translucent um, but they also have our our dragon logo on them as well and then we're gonna have uh, uh, dice bags that are handmade by Danny from hoop and loom uh, they're amazing. They have a holographic image of our logo, and they come in black or white. And the response has been uh, amazing. People are just so excited, and uh, those will be add-ons they can buy. And and then we have a couple other stretch goals, um, social media stretch goals to unlock pins. We know that pins, people are really crazy about pins right now. They love wearing them to conventions or just you know in their gaming groups. And so we have a couple of pens that we hope we can unlock that are tied in with the deck. Um, and I will say also, and we don't talk a lot about it because there's still a lot of mystery behind it, but the back of the cards, there's this device that, and you see it in the Kickstarter video at the very end, it's called the Mobius. And um, that will be a pen that can be unlocked through social media goals. And that will have a crucial point in a future adventures uh, and and campaigns, long term campaigns uh, going forward. So um, we'll definitely be incorporating the Mobius um, in, in future publications. And we all hope that gets unlocked, just because we want that pin. Yeah, that pin. So <laughs> yeah, good. I want one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> gotcha. And so you alluded to other adventures, other campaigns. Are you in fact planning on making campaigns for this world? For, yes. yes, there's going to be 
primarily for this world. We'll also be collaborating with other talented artists and creators that maybe are sub, they may be part of this world, they might be just uh, supplements for other game systems. You know, we, we uh, as long as we can produce quality products, both visually and internally, um, uh, we'll be, you know, we'll, 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 we'll produce it, we'll create it. And, um, but as far as our world, yes, we'll, we're, we have a, we already have the kind of the base structure uh, in place as how does the structure of the world work? How does magic work? And, um, we'll be, our next steps are going to be, uh, getting with a cartographer and laying out a map and, you know, locations. And then, uh, our first m module we're, 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 uh, working on next, there uh, will be a story based, uh, will, where spins involved, um, and it'll be for levels one through four. And then we'll build on that. The next, the next adventure series will be for levels five through eight, and then nine through twelve, and, and so on until we have this full uh, campaign where you can take your character from level one to twenty, for example. Um, gotcha. So yeah, we got a lot of things planned for the future. So we're really hoping that uh, with the fan support uh, that we can get this uh, first campaign funded and launched and um, that's going to open the doors for a lot of future products is there any discussion of maybe even creating your own rule set to go along with this campaign uh, not initially but yes we will we are in discussions about uh, having a rule set um, we want to try to develop the the world and you know and flesh that out more but it's something that's definitely we talked about. Um, you know, somebody who's um, GM'd for many years, you you kind of and you've played in or you've GM'd uh, from very various different game systems. They all have their pluses and minuses, and you know, a lot of times GMs will pick and choose and and kind of meld those together. So certainly, uh, for me, in the back of my mind, I have uh, some ideas of how I would like. Uh, to um, a rule structure, you know, and that's something we'll definitely be looking forward to in the future, uh, probably after we develop more of the world first. So you guys are like many game companies before you and like many game companies yet to come to fruition, turning to Kickstarter to get things going. Um, what kind of response are you guys anticipating from Kickstarter? Well, initially it was kind of an enigma, you know, um, but we've partnered ourselves and aligned ourselves with some really, um, really incredible people um, that are uh, both helping us, like Mark, who's designed the dice for us, um, and you know he's been an integral part of this team. Yeah, he's been a huge help, um, and so we're feeling more confident. Um, I think we're gonna. We may blow this out of the water. I, I don't, I don't want to jinx us, but um, I'm feeling really confident <laughs> that we'll, at the very least, we'll fund. Yeah. And our funding goal is really low. Cause, and that's uh, our goal. You know, if yeah, we fund, I mean, we're thrilled. If we're, we fund, we're thrilled. <laughs> yeah. Anything beyond that is, is you know, icing. Um, but I think, I, I feel confident we're going to fund uh, at some point, and I don't know when. You know, this is our first Kickstarter, so we don't, we don't have a lot of experience yeah. in that regard. From, you know, 
we've backed many projects. We've backed over a hundred projects on Kickstarter, but on the back on the this side of it, you know, this is our first project, so it's hard to say. But the response on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook has been incredible. Um, every time that, that we're able to meet somebody in person, we're able to show the cards in person. We've always had very positive reactions uh, to them. Even even non gamers are excited about it. Um, so uh, we've got a good feeling. We're we're really hopeful that uh, it'll carry through, carry over through to the campaign. Yeah, Kickstarter is actually the reason why we are doing this interview because we we both ended up backing the same Kickstarter. That's and that's how we got connected. Yeah. Oh. Yep. Yeah, Ryan, um, uh, we're both going to be... Are you going to be in the first issue of Broadsword Magazine? Yes, I will yeah. be in the first issue of Broadsword. Oh, that's yeah, great. so we're both going to be in our company's yeah, that's awesome. first nice. issue of Broadsword. And so Ryan posted in there what he does, and I immediately gravitate towards him, and we, we connected, and here we are. Great. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Yep. I actually interviewed Dave uh, a few episodes ago. Dave Arneson? Uh, no, uh, DM Dave. Oh, DM Dave. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I have not interviewed Dave Arneson yet. That, <laughs> that would be tons of fun. But... Yeah. I would have done that through a seance because he's no longer with yep. us. Yep. That, that would make it very fun. <laughs> it would be a really interesting interview. Though. Uh, yeah. Yep. DM Dave, he's a really good guy. Um, I've never met him in person, but I hope to sometime in the future. Um, he's been very generous and, um, um, you know, good guy to work with and he's excited about our project too. And he's going to be promoting us. Um, so we're feeling pretty good about it. Uh, all we know is we've done everything we could yeah. that we can to make a quality product that will be universal and usable w- with anybody who runs a game. Um, any kind of art, tabletop RPG, even future games. You know, these could be cards could be used as relics found on a you know an old planet, or in a in a modern game, they could be antiques or just unusual uh, items. They can be used in Cthulhu as mysterious, you know, powerful magic items or props that are not magical but um, are mysterious. Um, you know, the, we have stretch, uh, social, uh, media stretch goals to unlock where we convert our, um, system agnostic rules into various game system rules for GMs that don't want to take the time to convert to their game system. We're hoping we can unlock those. So we've got dungeon world is one of them. Pathfinder 1.0, D and D 5e. Um, and then we have a, a voter's choice one where we allow the, the fans to vote for which uh, system they they like us to convert the rules to. So we really want this to be as universal and helpful and and uh, usable as possible. And we've we've done our part. We've made the cards really high quality, high quality art, some gorgeous, beautiful art. When you when you get to the Kickstarter page, we've got some blown up images of the art, and the details are just incredible. And then you're even better in person. As we're kind of winding down here, um, what do you guys think of Kickstarter's impact on the gaming scene today? David, you want to chime in? Yeah, I. Uh, I mean, I, I think there there are a lot of games, obviously, that uh, 
exist now that would not have. And uh, mm-hmm. so I think it's been a, a huge game changer. So and it's really it's 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 cool in, in that it, it's put you know a lot of power into uh, you know these small gaming companies that don't have a lot of money to start up, but uh, you know through Kickstarter they can do that. And uh, I mean I've I've certainly bought into my share of Kickstarters, and uh, man, you know I, I I was I'm really glad for it. Yeah, I agree. I think it's really helped independent people, even people that aren't that are just they don't have a company. They just have an idea, and they just want to. Some sometimes it's just a one shot thing, and they it's just a creative outlet. They want to make something, or that's something they want to start small and build upon. Um, kind of like us, it's really a, a neat outlet um, to um, be able to let the, the, the let the people decide what's it's it's the ultimate um, you know Shark Tank. <laughs> for the individuals because they decide if it gets funded or not. I will say, though, uh, for anybody out there who's wanting to start a Kickstarter or thinking about doing a Kickstarter, you you can't just uh, make your product in a void and then stick it on Kickstarter and think that people are going to um, back it. You really need to do many, many months of uh, getting involved with the, the community, especially in the gaming community, there's, we've met so many incredible people through Twitter and Instagram and Facebook uh, all over the world, and you really need to uh, start doing that marketing months and months in advance before you even think about launching a product because that's what drives it. You, you need that community behind you before you even launch the Kickstarter to uh, believe in your product and wanting to buy in and share with their friends and their gaming groups. Um, so that would be, you know, definitely an advice I would give um, for, you know, people who are considering doing their own projects. And uh, just to kind of end the interview, uh, this is a question that we, I talked about with my guest last week. This is something that I'm going to continue to talk about with people moving forward. In your opinions, do you think that we are once again in a golden age of RPGs? Uh, I certainly do. I mean, there's so much material out there now, uh, and a lot of that is because of Kickstarter. Um, I mean, just I follow a lot of people on Kickstarter, and I I must get 20, 30 notifications a day about new projects, you know, new things or new that people are backing and supporting. Um, it's it's uh it's pretty incredible um, how much res- how many resources out there if you're especially if you're a GM. And you're wanting to run a game, uh, everything from 3D printed miniatures or 3D files to print your own things, to modules, to uh, worlds, different rule systems, uh, supplements like like our cards. Um, you know, it's just uh, really uh, incredible the, the amount of uh, um, creative people that are out there that's putting it to and put it in the hands of other individuals. Um, so definitely, I, th- I think that for sure. Yeah, yeah, I would say that uh, it's a golden age for sure. But I, I think it's been going on for for a while now, uh, as compared to when you know we were kids and playing. Uh, we we were playing it when it was not cool. Mm-hmm. So, but now it's just, I mean, it, and, and I'm excited too that they're 
you know, when we when we play, they're really girls and you know women didn't really play the game very much, but now it's just like this universal thing. It's just everybody loves it, you know. And, and now they see they see in it what we saw in it as kids, and that's that's an awesome thing. But it, the golden age, I think, uh, is not going to slow down. I just think it's going to keep getting bigger and bigger, and it's you know its value is going to be known more and more. Yeah, that's a good point, Stephen. Because yeah, when when in the in the early years it was kind of taboo, and you, unless you didn't really share it without people outside of your gaming group for fear of people making fun of you or you know thinking you're a geek or nerd or a weirdo, and you know several things have helped you know make it more mainstream. Mostly movies like Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings, and then Game of Thrones, and then you got these these Twitch channels, you know, the critters, um, you know, all these things have kind of made fantasy and sci-fi more mainstream and more acceptable and, you know, comic books, comic book movies. And so now, like Stephen said, people are starting to realize how much fun role-playing is, you know, um, it's just not a bunch of weirdos sitting in a basement uh, eating Cheetos and Mount, drinking Mountain Dew all day, although that that could be the case, um, it, it's really wide open for every anybody, you know. Uh, and women, I mean, in, in our group, we have two two guys and two two girls. So, um, in in our in our campaign, our Kickstarter campaign, uh, we have two two or three artists are women, you know. So. Actually, all the all the collaborators in this campaign, there are half of them are women. Yeah, so. and, and you also see with those artists, it's like it's pretty common to see uh, artwork that's fantasy, based off of fantasy. And and when we were growing up, it, that was pretty rare. But now mm-hmm. it's just like everybody seems to be influenced by it, you know, the artists and all. And as mm-hmm. as the golden age is growing, you know, they're. they're uh, some good things and some, and some bad things that that, that I personally uh, see uh, from a, a storytelling standpoint uh, heading in, in in certain directions and it's kind of uh, at least for me personally it's like uh, one of the things that drives me uh, with this project with Mike and Kim and our, our whole thing on quality is that uh, I, you know I want to I want to give a little bit of of my my uh, imagination and, and my uh, what I what I see is is that quality and, and influence to to these new generations to come, you know. So we we're putting a lot of effort in, into creating uh, a, an extreme amount of depth to the lore and the story, and uh, we're doing that because, or at least for me, because I want I want the these younger generations to see that. You know, and, and hopefully maybe be inspired by it. You know, uh, and at least enjoy it. So, mm-hmm. but sure. I, I, I look forward to seeing uh, the golden age continue. <laughs> I, and I, I, want, I wanted to mention something that actually reminded me about the gaming community. Um, so, uh, hopefully, pretty soon we already have the infrastructure in this place, but we are going to have a forum on our website. And what we really hope is that the community gets involved. And shares their ideas for individual cards. They come up with their own name for the card, their own rule systems for the card. They share how they used it in their games. You know, like the Tanker of Truth is one of the cards. 
and that maybe in their game it's called completely something different, and it does something completely different, and it has a different, you know, DC, uh, you know, challenge rating, uh, and so we're really hoping to, uh, we would love to see the community get together and just kind of, because uh, as a collective unit, there's, you know, they're they're far more going to be far more creative than than us, and um, you know, more minds the better, more creative minds the better, and uh, we would love to see. Um, what what the, everyone else comes up with with the artwork from these cards? Well, as we are recording this, uh, the Kickstarter will launch tomorrow, which is uh, Tuesday, July the sixteenth. As you all are hearing this, Kickstarter will be live, and they will be taking your pledges. Uh, guys, is there anything else you'd like to plug while while you're on here? I'd like to say. Um... Uh, Kim had come up with the idea at one point that we should start telling uh, Spins, Moby's Spins story. And uh, so uh, on the Mystic Dragon Games website, uh, there's a blog post uh, that's doing just that. So if uh, if anyone's interested in learning a little bit more about uh, his story, uh, you can find it there. Yes, for sure. And uh, that we'll be continuing to do that um, throughout the campaign and probably afterwards, um, sharing uh, more more in depth information about Spin. It seems like a lot of people are really interested in hearing his story, um, so we're excited about that as well. Gotcha. And uh, yeah, that is available at mysticdragongames.com. I've read what's available of it. It is fascinating. Um, so good job on that, guys. I thank you. I am legitimately interested in in what's unfolding there. Awesome. So that's great. It's good to hear that feedback because. You know, when you put stuff out there in the universe, sometimes it just it, it sits there, <laughs> and you don't mm-hmm. know. But we've had people. I've actually had a, a, a fan reach out and say that she really has been following us from the very beginning and uh, loves the stories. Um, but she has a hard time reading, so she was hoping that we could come up with a way where we could have a automated reader. Um, so we're working on that as well, so that for people driving or maybe. Um, um, you know, for accessibility, for, for accessibility, yeah. who have are sight impaired, um, they can still enjoy the stories by listening to them or any of any of the blog posts for that matter. All right, well, guys, it's been great talking to you. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. I hope you guys do well. I hope the Kickstarter is a success, and I hope to see more out of you guys in the future. We appreciate it. Thank you very yeah. much. Thanks so much. Uh, thanks for the opportunity to help us get the word out. Appreciate that a lot. Yeah. Oh, no problem. No problem. So, guys, that is going to do it for today's episode. Uh, next week, we will be on with another member of my old D&D group, the legendary David Holland. Um, so, until next time, I just have one question for everyone. Is this your card? I'll see you next time. <laughs>